Justine Sacco, I hope I'm saying her last name right. Justine Sacco, she went on a trip flying from New York City to South Africa to visit family. And obviously that's a long flight, a long travel day. She had several layovers, time on her hands. And so as she was traveling, she tweeted out to her 170 followers complaining about the indignities of travel. She complained about the the man who sat next to her on the first flight with incredibly bad B.O. She talked about how London welcomed her arrival with chilly weather, cucumber sandwiches, and bad teeth. And then before her flight, her 11-hour flight down to South, South Africa, she sent out this tweet. And whether it was supposed to be a joke, though ill-advised, or, or some sort of wry social commentary, this is what the tweet said. Headed to South Africa, I hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And no one really reacted or responded in the 30 minutes before she boarded the plane. She got on the plane. She fell asleep when she woke up and landed on the tarmac in South Africa. She powered up her phone. And the very first thing that she saw was a text from an old high school classmate that she hadn't talked to in years. And the text said, I'm so sorry that all this is happening to you. And Justine really had no idea what that meant. For about 30 seconds. And then her phone completely blew up. While she was sleeping, that tweet had gone viral. It trended to the number one position on Twitter's platform, and people vilified, mocked, ridiculed, and threatened, and globally and publicly shamed her. And immediately, her life completely changed. She was fired from her job, which ironically was as the director of corporate communications for IAC, this big corporation that owns things like Vimeo and Urban Spoon and Ask.com. But she was immediately fired. The hotel reservations that she had made in South Africa, they refused to honor those reservations because their staff threatened to strike if they did. And there were death threats that she received against her and against her family. Her family, who had supported organizations that were working in South Africa to fight against racism and apartheid. Her family that had been trying to push back against the darkness of this world, and now they were completely engulfed and consumed by that darkness, by, that, by this internet mob full of rage. It seemed as if people were just, just waiting. They were just looking. They were searching to find somebody who would do something that they could just jump on and, and judge and condemn and tear them down. But that's the world we live in, right? Actually, that was the world we live in. That happened Christmas of 2013. Imagine what the reaction would have been like today. Because in this world, 
It does seem that we are very quick, very ready to judge and condemn people. And we almost look for it. We look for someone to be at their worst and then to pile it on. And a few weeks ago, I talked about how, as a world, we really struggle with a symmetry and a balance of, of mercy and grace as well as, as justice and balancing those two things. And as much as it seems that in our world we've tried to cast aside morality and really say that everything is, is subjective, yet at the same time, we are a punishment-obsessed culture. But what about God's people? And we live in this punishment-obsessed culture. I mean, you think about, obviously, Justine's tweet. I mean, it was ill-informed. It was brash. It was moronic. It was highly offensive. But did, did it warrant global public shaming? Did it warrant death threats against her and her family? I mean, was that the right response and the right reaction? And yet we live in this punishment-obsessed culture. So what about the people of God? How, how do we respond? How do we react? The creed follows and connects the holy Christian church, the people of God, with this next phrase, the forgiveness of sins. And we're continuing today to talk about how our faith in God the Father, our Creator, God the Son, our Savior, God the Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier, how that faith that we have in our triune God works itself out in our lives. And so the creed really clarifies two things as we look at the creed and we look at God's word today. Number one, God forgives. And number two, God's people forgive. God's people become the, the platform through which God's incredible forgiveness is made tangible, is real. It touches the people of our world. And God demonstrates his incredible capacity to forgive for us today. But do people see that? Do people understand that about believers, about Christians, about the church? You see, there, there's this popular narrative and thought that's out there. It's, it's held by many outside of the church and it's held by some inside of the church that God is this enraged, angry, frustrated God. That he is just looking for the opportunity to judge and condemn. He is just waiting and watching for us to be at our worst so that he can jump on us with his anger and his punishment. But that simply isn't true. Our God forgives our God is full of mercy, and yes, He does look for us. He, he seeks us out, and maybe He even finds us at our worst. But God then lifts us up. God removes our wrongs. He takes away our guilt. He forgives and He restores 
And so as we look at Exodus chapter 34 this morning, we're going to see how God demonstrated his incredible capacity for forgiveness. So chapter 34, so here we go, the first 33 chapters of Exodus in about 33 seconds. Do you think I can do it? God's people come into Egypt. They become a great nation there. And because they're becoming a great nation, the pharaohs get a little scared and so they enslave them. They subject them. And as that subjection becomes harsher, God's people cry out to him. And God hears their cry and so he chooses Moses to lead his people. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he makes God's demand. Let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. And you have 10 horrific, terrible plagues, yes, of God's judgment and that demonstrated God's almighty power. And finally then, Pharaoh lets the people go until he changes his mind and he chases them down to the edge of the Red Sea. And then God flexes his supernatural muscles as he parts the sea and he allows his people to walk across on dry land and then drowns Pharaoh and his entire army in that sea. God's people travel then to the base of Mount Sinai. They camp there. Moses goes up onto the mountain of Sinai, up to the top. As he meets with God, there God delivers his covenant that he's going to establish with his people, his laws, his rules, his decrees, all that he's asking of them as they follow after him. And the people say, we will do everything that the Lord has said. Moses comes down, shares the message. We will do everything that the Lord has said. Moses goes back up on the mountain. He's up there a long time, 40 days. And the people grow restless. They go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, we don't know what's happened to Moses and we feel like God has abandoned us. You need to make us a God. And so Aaron says, okay, you need to offer, sacrifice your jewelry, your gold. And he takes it from all the people and then he makes this golden bovine calf. And he presents it to the people and he says, here is your God, here is the God who has rescued you out of Egypt. I mean, it's absolutely crazy because God had just delivered them. He had just shown his supernatural, incredible might and his desire for his people and they worship a golden baby cow. And so if God is the kind of God who's just waiting for us to mess up and he's just waiting to jump on us with his wrath and his anger and his punishment, then, then this is it. And by the way, the, while they were worshiping this golden calf, God was on the mountain with Moses. There's thunder. There's smoke. And so th- this is the moment. I mean, if God is angry and hateful and vengeful, then here it comes, the lightning bolts, the fire and brimstone, turn the people to ash. But that's not what God does. Instead, God proclaims his name. He says who he really is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now everyone heard that last part, right? Verse 7. Like we, we stopped there on that. 
And this is sometimes why we struggle a little bit with that balance, that, that symmetry. How, how can God be both this loving, abounding in love God and then also punish? Yes, it is true that God abounds in love, that he offers the forgiveness of sins, but not at the expense of justice. And so he is both incredibly just and incredibly merciful. And while that's difficult for us to grasp how God can be that way, I think you have to understand that where there is true, deep love, there is an incredible capacity for wrath. You see, I don't think that I'm a violent person. Now, maybe you disagree, I don't know. But I don't think that I am a violent, wrathful, vengeful person. But if you come after my wife or my children to hurt them, then you better believe I'm going to get violent in an instant. You better believe that you're going to see some wrath coming from me. You better believe that I'm going to do my absolute best to pummel you into the ground, to beat you down and drive you to the ground if you want to hurt my wife and my children. If you want to hurt those that I love. And I have to tell you something. God loves you. God loves you fiercely. And anything that is going to hurt you, he hates. And he will do what is necessary to drive it far from you. And so God hates sin. Because sin hurts you. And not only does sin hurt you, but sin always has communal and collateral damage. So sin not only hurts you, but it also hurts those around you. It hurts your children. It hurts your family. And so God has an incredible capacity for wrath because of his fierce love for you. And in that fierce love that God has for you, he also offers the forgiveness of sins. His fierce love for you, it is full of compassion and grace, mercy. This fierce love that God has for you, it is steadfast. It doesn't waver, it doesn't shift, it is steady. You can rely on it, it is consistent. fierce love that God has for you. And so, you know, maybe sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that. As God offers us the forgiveness of sins, do you believe that? Like, really believe it? Do you trust that God has forgiven all of your sins, that he has redeemed and he has restored you? And maybe sometimes that's hard, but that is experienced, it is known 
in Christ Jesus, our Savior, that God sent His one and only Son. And in keeping with His perfect justice, instead of casting His wrath and His anger on you, the the punishment that you do deserve, He put that punishment on His Son. So that you would be forgiven. And it doesn't matter if you think that you are too far gone. If you think that the fault lines in your heart and in your life, that they run too deep or, or that the hole that you've dug for yourself, it is too massive for God to pull you out because God can pull you out. God can forgive you and save you. Why do you think that God used three different words for what exactly he forgives? I mean, wouldn't it have been just a lot simpler, a lot more clear if God just simply said, I I forgive? Why does God say, I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin? Why does he make it more complicated? Well, I think it's for your benefit so that you can know, you can be absolutely fully assured of your forgiveness, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been. Because God forgives wickedness. Now the word for wickedness, it's a word that can be used to describe either the action or the guilt that accompanies that action. But there's a level of intensity here with wickedness. This is premeditated. It is planned. It's when you, when you sit on your couch and you, and you think about it and you plan out the wrong that you're going to do. You plan out and you think about the the actions that you're going to take that you know are immoral. And this isn't just a linguistics lesson because for some of you, whether you're listening, whether you're watching today, whether you're here in the room with us, for some of you, this might be where you're at. You might be at wickedness. Maybe it's an adulterous relationship. Maybe it's an addiction that you know you have, but you're not willing to do anything about. Maybe it's that you know that that next step that you're about to take, it's going to spiral your life out of control, but you're still going to take it. But listen to me. God forgives you. Now, sometimes we we feel like if I'm already waist deep in this mess, then I might as well just dive all the way in fully and completely. But it doesn't matter if you are waist deep. It doesn't matter if you're neck deep. It doesn't matter if you're, you're gasping and you're struggling for your very last breath before you drown in that mess. God can still rescue and forgive you. He can still grab your arm and pull you out of it. God forgives wickedness. He also forgives rebellion. Each and every day you have choices. Choices to do what is right, what is just, what is God-pleasing, and choices to do what is wrong. And sometimes, even though you know what is right and what is just and what is God-pleasing, sometimes you turn the other way. God forgives rebellion. 
And God forgives sin. Sin is probably the broadest of the words that's here, used here. It, it simply means to miss the mark. And we miss a lot. And we fall short of God's glory. But God forgives sin. And so I think that God uses all three of these words and, and He compounds them one on top of the other so that you know you are absolutely, fully, completely assured that you are forgiven. God forgives. Accept it. Believe it. Treasure it. Marvel at it. And then become the platform through which God's forgiveness touches our world. Did you notice what Moses did after God had declared who he was, his great compassion and his mercy and his forgiveness? Moses appealed to that forgiveness and he asked for more. He asked for God to take those people as his own inheritance. And this is what God said. God said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. As God remained among his people, he would perform wonders that the world would see. And as God remains with his people today, he still desires to perform those wonders that the world will see. That the world will recognize, that the world will wonder about, will ask questions about. And one of those wonders is the forgiveness of sins. That among God's people, the world will see love and grace and forgiveness. So I ask you, what has the world seen lately from Christians? What has the world seen from the church? What has the world seen from you? Do they see that we are quick to judge, quick to condemn? Or do they see that we are quick to forgive? quick to extend grace and mercy. Of course, we will never ever compromise on truth and morality. But can we be the people that demonstrate God's incredible forgiveness in our own lives? As we become imitators of God as we were encouraged today, can we imitate His forgiveness and his love, his overabounding love to others. Can we be those who are filled with compassion? I pray today, my prayer for our church, my prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that we are led and empowered by the grace and forgiveness of God so that we too, in turn, forgive. We demonstrate that incredible love to our world. And I pray that such forgiveness such real and true forgiveness is what defines the christian church so that our world can see the wonders of our god because then we will counsel one another with 
forgiveness. It means that we can come to one another. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have the perfect marriage. We don't have to be the perfect parents. We don't have to have life all figured out. We can, we can come with our mistakes and our failures and we can confess to one another and we can be reminded and assured of God's forgiveness and the strength that it gives us to live to his glory. We can witness to our world of that incredible forgiveness. In this world obsessed with punishment, we can be a light that demonstrates God's grace and mercy because yes, we really do believe in the forgiveness of sins. Amen. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 